You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to Episode 78 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob is stuck in Zoomiverse. He is stuck in a work meeting, and he will probably pop in later on to join us to continue the discussion. So today, we are coming to you remotely from Chris's home on Long Island, working remotely. So the Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at, at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash librarypros. Consider leaving a review or tell someone about us because word of mouth is the best way for our podcast listenership to grow. So today joining us is Sari Feldman, the former director, executive director, I'm sorry, of the Cuyahoga County Public Library, and that is the library district that surrounds the city of Cleveland, Ohio. It is not in Cleveland, but it surrounds the city. And she's also the former president of the Public Library Association and former president of the American Library Association in 2015-2016, and also an author and contributor to Publishers Weekly. So we're going to speak with Sari about her article, Public Libraries After the Pandemic, and how libraries prepare for the reboot of what libraries do. But first, let's chat and get to know our guest. So how long were you the director at Cuyahoga County Public Library, and what were your biggest challenges as a director there? Because it sounds like it's a big library district. So the first thing I have to say is thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And um, it was, it, I know people are reading the column, but it's always great to get some feedback that people, you read it and you were interested. I was at the Cuyahoga County Public Library for 16 years, and they were 16 amazing years. And I think that the, the challenge was the same challenge that everyone has in libraries, ensuring that the library stays relevant and then that people know we're relevant. So it's both a what are we doing question and how do we let people know that we're doing it. And that'll be the challenge after the pandemic too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that is, um, that's going to transcend uh, whether we're in the building or not. So we've always been involved in professional organizations here in New York. But can you share with our listeners why it's so important to be involved in professional organizations, both locally and nationally? Again, I have to digress for a minute and first tell you that uh, I was in New York for a long time. And at one point, I was the president of the young adult division of NILA. So I have history with NILA as well. But um, I think it's very important to be involved nationally because we're more powerful than we, when we speak with one voice. And there is power in participating in the largest and oldest library association in America, and that is ALA. Uh, I know that not everyone can go to a conference, although the conference is virtual this year, so more people than ever can attend. But it is about the work that our association does and the power of communication. As president of the American Library Association, I recognize the platform to deliver the Libraries Transform campaign across the country 
and actually globally. And that was very exciting. That was, um, you know, a, kind of an unbelievable experience for a librarian to have to be able to talk about what libraries do in this changing environment. Right now, we need the American Library Association to help libraries get dollars in this third wave of coronavirus bills in Congress. I mean, libraries need dollars to reopen, and also libraries will be called upon to deliver on some community need that may be different than the work done in the past. And one in particular is the need for universal broadband, and the American Library Association is actively involved in a coalition to try to make that happen for the American people. Well, it's interesting you bring that up, because I had interviewed another... um Ohioan um, in a previous episode, and you know she was talking about the struggle of trying to get that high-speed internet access to rural areas, which is something that here in New York we kind of take for granted. But I can actually speak from a little bit of experience from having friends that are up in the North Country in northern New York in the Adirondacks, where they only recently finally got approval from the Adirondack Park Agency to have a high-speed internet company come in and install high-speed internet to homes uh, up in the Adirondacks. So I do understand that that high-speed internet is, has been more of a luxury than a necessity and is now quickly becoming a necessity. And I have to say that it's also true in urban areas. When the big um, companies came in and brought in broadband, there was a lot of redlining in urban areas. So my experience in Cuyahoga County is that many communities do not have access to high-speed internet. And libraries provide, and we don't, we know libraries. We know that libraries provide very, very important service to people, um, particularly the economically disadvantaged around access to the internet. And now the lending of wireless devices is an increasingly important service. Very, very expensive. We need Congress to deliver on a promise of universal broadband. And while they're delivering on that promise, which is going to take some time, to give libraries dollars to loan uh, wireless devices. Well, I also find it interesting in the context of history. During the Great Depression, not everyone had a telephone. And here we are now in another circumstance, not unlike that on an economic level, where not everybody has internet in their home and whether they are, uh, they can't afford it because, you know, it's a socioeconomic thing or whether it's a just not in the area rural versus urban thing. I think it, there's a parallel to be drawn there. So the telephone became a lifeline for people. Now the internet is the lifeline. And I, I can speak from some, some experience where we circulate I think we have 40 hotspots that go out, and they're never in. They're always on hold. They're always um, useful, whether it's a family going on vacation that don't want, doesn't want to use their data or somebody who really needs that Internet access but can't afford to have that high-speed Internet in their home. It, it, it really has become an essential, not just for libraries, but for the people we serve as well. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about the pandemic and uh, how it affects library service in a moment. But tell me what library service means to you. So prior to the pandemic, 
I began talking a lot about the intersection between information and experience. And that's where I think libraries have evolved. And we remain a very human-centered organization. And that's what libraries mean to me. I think you're right, too, because, I mean, what we do, a lot of what we do is, you know, and it sounds like an icky word to say now, but pressing the flesh. We're very involved in, in being the building and coming in as being a cultural center and being a community center and coming in, having people come in and take things out and being part of a community. John Berteau, who um, it was at the University of Maryland um, in the library school, the iSchool, he once said that the job description for a librarian should be like people, want to solve problems, this is the profession for you. And I believe that is true to this day. You're 100% right. And the one thing that is kind of irks me a little bit is when you see these stereotypes of what, you know, people still perceive librarians to be, you know, uh, primarily female with a hair in a bun, wearing a shawl and shushing people. That could not be further from the truth nowadays. You know, that model from the 1930s hasn't really advanced from that model. And that's always been a level of frustration. Being a male librarian, uh, it frustrates me, but as a whole for the profession, I think we're due that recognition that we do a lot more than just check books in and out. Absolutely. So let's take a short break, and when we return, we're going to chat with Sari about libraries, the pandemic, and where we go from here. So we'll be right back. Hi, it's Chris from the Library Pros, and I want to tell you about the book Best Technologies for Public Libraries, Policies, Programs, and Services. I, along with Nick Tanzi and James Hutter, both amazing technology librarians and previous guests on this podcast, co-authored the endeavor. If you're interested in bringing 3D printing, augmented reality, virtual reality, or drone flying to your library, this book has what you need. It's a roadmap to successfully implementing this technology because we cover purchasing, developing effective policy, finding the right software, and have model programs and services already designed to make planning programs easier. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books or ebooks. I hope you'll check it out. Okay, we're back with Sari Feldman, author of Publisher Weekly's article, Public Libraries After the Pandemic. There's so much to cover with reopening after an event like this. And this is something that is not going away. So in your article, you cover a lot of ground, talking about materials handling, patron service and access, library and the publisher relationship, which I found fascinating, e-services, and that shift to digital. There's so many components to this reboot. And they're all extremely important. So how does the library and its administration prioritize what gets done first? I think that the most important issue is going to be regaining trust and confidence in libraries. So libraries are very localized, and there may not be a one-size-fits-all, nor will there probably be you know, the same kind of opening. Clearly, if you're in Georgia, you're probably expected to open your doors today. If you're in New York City, 
you may not be expected to open your doors until the fall or beyond. But whatever service delivery model, whether it's curbside pickup or digital content, we have to be sure that people know libraries still have their best interest and their safety and privacy as a core value. Yeah, I don't think libraries are ever going to lose that, those, those, those values and will always be there for the patron. You know, I just sent off another column to Publishers Weekly, and it's, it's fun, interesting that you say that because it's that personal piece that I hope we never lose. And how we recreate that will be very interesting. Well, you talk about that, that, personal, that personal component. So one thing, I brought my, my daughters in last summer because they had nothing going on. There was no camp that day. And uh, I thought they could just go have some fun down in the team department. And they were walking around with me. And four or five patrons said, hey, Chris, how you doing? How, how are things? I'm like, oh, things are great. How are you? This is last summer. And when we got out and into the car... They looked at me kind of strange, and they said, why do all those people know your name? I said, because I help them. Now, in that one walk, maybe 300 feet, I talked to four or five, maybe six people who, who knew me by name. I knew them by name. And it really resonated with me at that point that I really help these people, and they value me for what I do. And ever since that happened, when I do walk around, I make it a point of saying hi to patrons, and I walk by whether I know them or not. And I make it a point to try to develop that relationship because that really is how you keep people coming back. And I think that is the core of the relationship of what libraries and librarians do. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is about really establishing relationships. Not everyone gets personal with patrons, but everyone who's good at the job makes a connection with a patron. So we have been having more frequent technology meetings here in library land on Long Island. We used to have them monthly, and we talked about this before we popped the mics on. We, we used to have them monthly, and now, and only twice a year jointly with our colleagues in Nassau County. Uh, and now we're meeting together weekly over Zoom. And the turnout has been amazing with the steady attendance being between 125 to 175, and, and I think last week we hit 200. So the tech librarians and information technology professional jobs in the library have now changed forever. How do you foresee that change for the the tech-heavy people in the library, the employees? So maybe one of the outcomes... I I had all these um, project ideas that uh, didn't get implemented in my long and, I must say, very fortunate career. And one of my ideas was the idea of libraries recreating a kind of genius bar. So I had this library customer call me one day, and she said, I was given an iPad, and I went to the genius bar, but you have to be a genius to get help at the genius bar. Is there anyone at the library who can help me? And although I know people at the library are um, very good at helping 
with all kinds of devices and all kinds of questions. I think that there is going to be a role for a kind of library device 911. People are increasingly going to be dependent on their devices. And there's really smart technicians at libraries who could be helping that person at home who cannot be disconnected because of educating their children, working their job, or perhaps doing a telemedicine visit with their doctor. Our devices are going to be among the most important things we own. There is no escaping that. And the library could fill what I believe will be an essential gap in helping people. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that that gap because I can imagine us being tech help to supplement the schools for when, you know, the distance learning uh, component of what the students are doing now. And in terms of like the tech heavy stuff, I think it's going to be interesting too to see how we approach helping patrons once the buildings are open and people are coming back in as well because that raises its own level of challenges with regard to uh, social distancing and PPE and how do you wear PPE but yet still act friendly? How, do you, how can people see your smile through a mm-hmm. mask and, and things like that too? So um, I think, I mean, correct me if, if you, you feel differently, but I think how we do our one-on-one tech help is going to change. Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of it is going to be over a phone, you know, increasingly, um, where the library is the one place you can call where you get a human being to answer the phone and you, you know, you get a call back. If the library says they're going to call you back, you can rely on a human being calling you back where people don't feel that way about any other service. You also know your library is in your hometown or the equivalent of your hometown, not somewhere globally. And that's a different feeling as well. And it may be somebody that you actually know. Yes, exactly. Again, back to that personal relationship. Right. Uh, So, again, talking about that shift now to this electronic model and the shift to e-services that, you know, it's really accelerated the digital platform as libraries. So some have said libraries have now been forcefully propelled five years into the future. Uh, We've always had databases. We've always had electronic services and resources. But now they're really front and center because we can't be front and center physically with the building. So Overdrive, which I found, Overdrive, which is also Libby, is seeing big numbers in terms of downloads. There was, I forget what the number was, but it was an insane amount of people who downloaded the app as a result of this. So how does this change our model from being a hands-on, personal, in your, in your personal space model versus a digital model? And should libraries be pursuing more e-services versus the physical materials? So like DVDs. There are a large part of circulation, but does this kill the DVD and does it hurt other physical materials? So I used to, so I have, I had a very long career and um, when DVDs came into libraries and 
more attention had to be paid to material security than the actual material content, I used to say, I will retire when something easier replaces the DVD. I didn't quite last that long, but um, we could already see that streaming media was affecting the circulation of DVDs and certainly affecting the theft of DVDs, which, you know, was the bigger piece of all of this. And CDs, you know, the prediction is as soon as there are no more CD players in cars, the CD is gone from library collections. And some some libraries have stopped purchasing CDs already. So I think we were headed in that direction where DVDs and CDs were going to become less important. Um, in my next column for PW, I kind of um, bemoan uh, the fact that it will maybe be harder to get physical books from libraries because I, I read in both formats, but I prefer a physical book and I love physical books for a lot of different reasons. And I think that role that libraries have played is still going to be important. And we see curbside pickup and drive up windows being among the first pieces of the library to reopen. Um, I, I do think um, and that libraries will continue to have some kind of lending, but I worry that to continue lending, so much focus and so many dollars will have to be placed on cleaning and maintaining collections that for a lot of libraries um, that they will go all digital sooner rather than later. I hope that won't be true. I hope so too. But I do recall, I believe, I'm probably going to misrepresent this, but I'm going to throw it out there. I think it was Las Vegas or someplace else out West where the, there was a, a San Antonio, San Antonio, San you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So there was a yeah. branch that was a digital only branch. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what has happened since that original article came out, whether or not it's still there and whether it's still a success. Um, and I haven't heard it being used that often as a model for what the future of libraries look like. But it, it, you have to ask yourself the question, you know, should we be weeding stuff that hasn't circulated in six or seven years and maybe making more space for collaborative spaces and maybe looking to what academic libraries are doing with regard to the use of their space? Well, you know, I have... Uh, I worked for a library system that was, we were popular libraries. We were an all-branch system. And so we had very refreshed collections that turned over and we didn't have real stacks or um, kind of, uh, you know, we didn't have archival collections of any kind. We relied on um, cooperatives with other libraries to be able to borrow from main library collections. Um, I think this is all going to become uh, very complicated and we will be forging a path in a very different world. I think this initial circulation from drive-up windows and curbside service will inform a lot about the public's appetite to 
participate in that sharing economy that had become a very important part of library collections and a very important piece of messaging library collections. Um, you know, the Cuyahoga County Public Library had a big toy library. You know, how soon will people be willing to borrow toys for their children? You know, this is all to, to learn. We'll all be learning together. And I think that's the interesting thing about this, too, that, you know, there's no playbook for this. Nobody has a playbook. Right. Nobody's seen this happen before uh, or had, is alive to have remembered 1918. So how do we adapt to this? And I think, I think from what we're seeing is that there's really a measured response where people aren't just panicking and, and doing these things. We're talking. We're, you know, collaborating, as we always do as librarians in our profession, trying to figure out what the most efficient, judicious, and friendly, you know, steps are to move forward. And I think that, that speaks volumes for the profession. Absolutely. So online programming has become a huge undertaking. Uh, everyone has now scrambled to produce YouTube videos and Zoom meetings and Facebook Live events and Twitter movie clubs and, and all this, this crazy new stuff that's all being innovated as we speak. Nobody knows what the future of programming is going to be for the next couple of years, whether we're staying virtual or have some mix of virtual and in-house programming again with musical events and crafts and, and makerspace things. This is a challenge for libraries moving forward. So what are your thoughts on how libraries continue these services? And, and should it be more virtual? Should we go back to eventually merge back to the only in-person or should we have some type of mix? Well, there's a lot of virtual content out there, and some of it is being produced by libraries, but um, there's also the opportunity to get content from a lot of other places that libraries can point to for their patrons. What, what I think is going to be more interesting for libraries is how to figure out a high-touch virtual relationship with patrons. We were talking about that. Like, patrons wanted you as their librarian, right? They were looking for you. So um, I think this will be very staff-intensive, but I wonder if there's a way for libraries to develop, um, and some libraries have done this in the past, kind of a hybrid of live web reference and concierge services um, and book a librarian service where people can have that high touch experience with their favorite librarian, um, helping them to select books. If, if you don't have browsing collections and you want to be doing more of that reader's advisory service or somebody is working on a publication and they want to be talking to the librarian uh, about research tools or starting a small business. After um, the downturn in the economy in 2008 through 2010, Cuyahoga County found that many people recognized they would never go back to work because their jobs didn't exist anymore. So they started small businesses. So the library 
was a very important place for that support. So again, how do you develop that concierge service? And one thing that will be very advantageous for library systems in that area and for libraries joining together as a kind of system is that not everybody has, every librarian has the same expertise. So if we share librarian specialties and you can book the, um, you know, the legal librarian from one place for the hour long session concierge service or the best reader's advisor for romance novels or whatever it is that you're looking for, someone who can help you figure out how to get your kids to um, read some things not required by school, you know, whatever the problem might be, um, you know, people will be able to share that expertise more broadly over good digital platforms. But I think it's going to be libraries recreating a high-touch service that will set us apart. Well, I see that Bob has joined us. I Hi, have. Bob. Hi, how are you? So sorry for my uh, delay. Um, this, no this problem. Whole... All right. So because Chris and I are more on the tech end of libraries, uh, we don't see this next issue as much. But one thing that you bring up in your article is the library uh, slash publisher relationship. Uh, there are so many facets to that relationship beyond ordering materials. Uh, could you explain a little bit uh, how it affects libraries of varying budgets and what you think the future holds for that relationship? So currently, uh, uh, let me just say, publishers have been, um, you know, really controlling the contracts. Libraries don't, ha it, it's not a, um, a relationship with publishers. The publishers set the terms, libraries must accept them. I mean, we accept those terms through a platform like Overdrive, but we don't have any negotiating power. Um, additionally, we're at the mercy of a publisher deciding to embargo. Fortunately, you know, the pandemic put an end to that, or a publisher deciding to raise prices, or, or any, or you know, any of the um, many uh, business relationships that might exist for other services, we don't really have much say in that publisher um, purchasing relationship. I hope that'll change. I hope that as we come through this and publishers will recognize that libraries are more important than ever in discovery and hand-selling of titles. Um, that publishers will recognize how much libraries purchase and how those library sales can really make a difference in the recognition, the success, the continuation of a physical book or a digital book that publishers will be more open to understanding that libraries have to be responsible to public dollars and we can't just be paying increasingly steep um, premium prices for everything we buy. Right. It makes a lot of sense um, because 
especially now with where where we are fiscally um, with regard to how much we're going to have in our budgets. I mean, a lot of our libraries couldn't have budget uh, votes because of of the pandemic and, and all these other things. It, do you think also, um, and this is something that I think that you brought up in your article about how having the author in for that Press the Flesh book tour where they're coming to libraries and and meeting the readers and, and doing book discussions and, and book signings and things like that. I'm sure that affects the author. Uh, obviously, it affects the author, but it also affects the publisher. Yes. Um, you know, surely um, that will that won't be happening. You know, that is going to be a purely virtual experience. And whether, you know, libraries will then acquire book plates for patrons. You know, I don't know how that's going to work, but, you know, that will be very different. And the author and the publisher won't need the library for that. They'll be able to deliver that right to the reader in many ways. Um, But the discovery piece, the promotional piece, the ongoing relationship of a book an author and a reader, they will need the library for that. Well, what's interesting too is, and, and Bob, see if you agree with me. Uh, one thing that we've been seeing with some of the libraries who have podcasts, they're bringing these authors in, and now uh, I, I know that the Carolyn Tack from the Merrick Public Library has a podcast called the uh, Top Shelf at Merrick Library, and she interviews authors exclusively now, and she is kind of like on the virtual book tour when it comes to publishers who want to get their their author's uh, work out there. So I think it kind of it's kind of cool how podcasting uh, integrates with libraries and now also brings in the publishers. So it's kind of like a trifecta for libraries. For sure. It, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, why not put them on a podcast? Because now they can do a virtual book tour. So, yeah, they're, they're not signing and pressing the flesh, but... They're still getting the word out there, like almost like doing a radio tour or a television tour if you're promoting a movie. Uh, so I think libraries with podcasts can facilitate um, that relationship with publishers, uh, and hopefully it'll keep costs down too, because now they don't have to pay for the book tours. Yeah, libraries have big audiences, and they're um, and they're proving that. Uh, people are still visiting the website, downloading the content. So why not attending these virtual programs, whether they're podcasts or broadcasts or whatever? Well, this has been great. And I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to speak with us about libraries after the COVID crisis. Um, Sharing your insight is valuable to the profession and to our listeners. So we thank you for that. So when we come back, we're going to be asking, uh, sorry, our top 10 uh, library questions or the O two O three two list, which is the Dewey top, the Dewey number for top ten <laughs> list. You think I know? I have this down by now, you know. So we usually give thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list of the questions, and that we ask all of our guests. So we'll be back in just a moment.
All right, we are back with uh, Sari Feldman, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. The questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, a library news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com. They do a great job educating and informing library professionals on great topics from all over the world. Thank you so much, Literary Hub. Okay, so you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so what did you want to be when you were a child? Okay, you're going to be really surprised. But I wanted to be a forest ranger. I grew up in the country, and I loved the outdoors. And but I discovered by working to the um, writing to find out about becoming a forest ranger that I am of such an age women were not welcome. So I had to come up with something else. Well, that's terrible. They wouldn't let women be forest rangers. I know. I was just going to say. Not 60 years ago. <laughs> um, so what is your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? So I grew up in a town without a library. Um, at one point, we had bookmobile service that came. But when my sister learned to drive, she, my parents joined a neighboring library in Ellenville, New York, and every two weeks my sister would get the family car to take me to the library. And it was the most wonderful experience. I would fill a bag of books. And I was in love with going to the library. Okay, so when did you decide to work in a library? And if it wasn't your first career path, because many librarians um, choose a different profession, profession for their first career, what was your first career path? So I, I've often told this story. I had a job. Uh, I, I always say I had the kind of job that lets you know it's time to go back to school. I was living in Madison, Wisconsin, and doing a lot of volunteer work. And somebody encouraged me to consider um, the, what was then the library school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And when I met um, the this professor, Margaret Monroe, and uh, she challenged me to consider librarianship, but also if I wanted to study with her, I had to be an extraordinary student. And I always say that uh, Margaret Monroe changed my life, and I named my oldest daughter for her. So um, who was your favorite fictional librarian? So my favorite fictional librarian is Peggy Court in Elizabeth McCracken's The Giant's House. Now, she is a bit of a stereotype, that spinster librarian, but she falls in love with the tallest man in the world. And I love the eccentricity of the book, Elizabeth McCracken's writing, and the romance. So that is my favorite librarian. I think that's a new one for us, right, Chris? That is a new one. I love when we get new ones. This is great. So I recommend the book. So what would you be doing if you were not working in a library or, or you didn't work in a library? So I asked my husband that. I said, what would I be doing? And he reminded me that when I asked, when I told my parents I was going to become a librarian, my father cried because he had a very stereotyped image of what people do as librarians. And he offered to take out a second mortgage on the house 
if I would consider law school or medical school. So I suppose I would be a lawyer or a doctor. Oh, wow. That is funny. Well, I think it shows very well. Absolutely. We're glad to have you. My God. And, you know, my father lived long enough to um, see me achieve a great deal in my career. And, um, you know, he was very proud. Absolutely. As he should be. That is great. So what is your favorite section of the library? I'm a fiction reader, and I'm a reader. So um, I can tell you that I love losing myself in those fiction shelves, and I love nothing more than discovering a book by an author I never heard of before. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? Before I left Cuyahoga County Public Library, I was trying to find a donor for to open a second auditorium. Uh, the library has an auditorium that is incredibly successful, and we were hosting all these amazing events for hundreds of people in that auditorium. I don't know about the future of auditoriums. So now I think I would add after our entrances, coded after our, our entrances for we work kinds of settings where people could come in and use library space and library resources. And in fact, I think this would work for a maker space. People come in on their own to use space. And that's where I look at putting money. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've never had something like that before. That's a really novel idea. I like that. Now I'm trying to figure out how we can do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you absolutely love, capital L-O-V-E, about your library? So for me, it was all about the people. You know, um, I love the value that people in Cuyahoga County placed on the library and, and even the demands they made on the library. I love the people I worked with in the library. Some of my closest friends in the world are people I worked with in the library or librarians. So I think when you're considering a profession, it is the greatest profession because it's all about people, all about supporting people. Okay, so this is a question that we love the answers to. we always tell people it's not the worst thing, but what is the weirdest thing that you have ever seen happen in your long and storied career in libraries? So I don't know if this is the weirdest thing, but this was the first memory that came to mind. Cuyahoga County Public Library was lucky enough to host the musician Graham Nash at the library. But we only had like, I don't know, 48 hours notice he was coming. So we did some email blasts and we hoped that people would show, but we also worried that too many people would show. So we said that it was a free event, but you had to come to the library at nine o'clock in the morning, that opened at nine o'clock in the morning and get a ticket for entrance. And the event was going to be at noon that day. So I got to the library at 8.30 in the morning 
and there was a line of people wrapped around the building. And I never forgot that. And then he turned out to be the nicest person in the world, gave a great talk and signed books for hours afterward. But um, it was the sight of people like wrapped around the library. That was amazing to me. That's fantastic. That is really cool. So who would you say is your favorite regular patron? Okay, she knows who she is. Um, She's been a donor to the library, which is how I was able to get to know her so well, because I don't work the floor in the library. But um, I haven't in years. But she was the kind of philanthropist who gave dollars but also gave her treasure, but also gave her time. And last summer, she went to the library at least once a week and read to kids during the free lunch program that the library had. And she was beloved. She went to a library in the poorest community with the neediest kids to read and pay attention to children And she was amazing. And um, she's a big reader, so I love that about her. But her heart is as big as her entire body. She's an amazing woman. It's great to have people like that, isn't it? Oh, we're so lucky in libraries because we have so many people who love us. So what are people without, and this is our last question, what are people without library cards missing out on? So right now you're certainly missing out on entertainment and education because you could be getting the best of everything right into your house. But you're also missing out on opportunity. You're missing out on that today and into the future because libraries open that opportunity door and when you find that special librarian like you, Chris, you're going to get very personalized entertainment and education materials, but you're also going to get a wealth of great ideas. So I remember from being you know, a reference librarian that I would tuck away in my mind, gee, I wonder if this new homeowner patron knows about this tool lending service in this city. You know, that's just the kind of example. So there's endless opportunities provided by the knowledge experts in libraries. It's amazing, isn't it? It, And it it still baffles my mind that people don't want to come into a library. Not that they can come in now, but you know what I mean? Like participate... Or, right. or take advantage of all the services that are there. It just it baffles my mind. So, and it, it baffles my mind that everyone doesn't want to be a librarian because I think it's the greatest profession. Oh, it's amazing! It really is. So, for our listeners out there who haven't seen your article yet, it's in Publishers Weekly. It's called "Public Libraries After the Pandemic," and it was on April seventeenth of this year, twenty twenty. And you can find it online at publishersweekly.com. Is there anything else you want to tell us about or promote? Because you have more articles coming, right? Well, I I have articles from the past. And um, I write about nine times a year. But 
this year with a little more uh, time on my hands, I'm writing a little bit more. So I've had been having things appear more regularly about once a month. Excellent. So we'll, we'll keep looking for you in Publishers Weekly. Sari Feldman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. And I wish you good health um, and um, to open your library successfully in the very near future. Thank you. And you enjoy your retirement as well. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachin Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippin Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.